Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian. That's me. <laughs> you forgot your name right. for a second. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, you forget a lot now, but it's okay. No, we're not supposed to do those tired old jokes no, anymore, we're, Sean. We're on. Uh, <laughs> we're not. Uh, we're we're, we're on the air now. We're recording, so we gotta we gotta keep we're it together, live? Brian. We gotta. Keep I should have put together. a suit on today. So, welcome back to our show. Um, as you know, this is Mini Law School in about twenty minutes, and uh, we do this you know a couple of times a week now. Um, and uh, we try to now organize it by topic. And so, what's our topic today? Our topic today is attorney fees. Right. Attorney fees and a very important thing, uh, part of what keeps the lights on. Right. Um, keeps the people employed. Yep. And uh, we're going to talk about four interesting cases. But before we do that, Brian, where can they find us online? They can find us online at different places. <laughs> oh, well, that's very informative. <laughs> that would require me to know. Online. Spotify. Does he really not know our website? Maybe Brian doesn't KBK know our website. KBKLawyers.com. That's very good. Wow. You can that's reach really out good. to me and Shant. I'm probably more likely to respond because Shant, you know, he works part time. Right. I'm lazy. Yeah. I'm lazy, but uh, we have some exciting cases today, uh, one of which the first one's going to be about Lemon Law, and that's something that comes up pretty often in the context of attorney fees. Uh, this one is not such a great uh, opinion or not a great outcome. Uh, next, we're going to talk about attorney fees in civil rights cases. Then we're going to talk about attorney fees in elder abuse cases. And lastly, we're going to talk about attorney fees in class actions and uh, the principle of pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So let's let's just jump in here. And the first case is called Michaela Poor versus BMW of North America. Uh, the second name was easier to pronounce than the first one for me, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And this case, uh, so what this case is about is it's a typical lemon law case. It's against BMW. I guess there was a defective car, um, and the case ultimately went to trial. The plaintiff prevailed at the trial. The jury came back. It was a five or six day jury trial. The the jury came back and awarded the plaintiffs. Um, something relatively small, I think like $35,000 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was for... 17000 in compensatory damages, which gets doubled, I think, under the under the act. Uh, so 35000 total. Right, 35, and that was, the, that was the ultimate outcome. And reading between the lines here, it looked like there was some kind of a 998 that they may not have beat, the plaintiff may not have beat. And so this case comes up on an uh, application for attorney fees because, as we've covered in prior podcasts, under the Song Beverly Act, which is the Lemon Law Act, Attorney fees are mandatory if you win against a dealer, manufacturer, seller of automobiles, whatever. And uh, in this case, the um, the plaintiff lawyers submitted a a fee application for, I believe, about three hundred and forty three thousand dollars for attorney yeah. fees. That I think it was two hundred sixty six thousand in fees with a point five uh, multiplier enhancement and five thousand um, dollars I think for costs or something else. On so one of the it. common themes you're going to see in these fee cases is whether it's abuse of discretion, which means it's hard to get it set aside. You have to establish that there's an abuse of discretion. And one of the themes you're going to see in this case is how much work and effort did the judge put into evaluating the attorney fee application? And so in this case, it looks like the judge, a well-respected um, judge from the LA Superior Court, put a fair amount of time into reviewing the fee application. So right or wrong, whether we agree or disagree, he uh, took a substantial cut of the attorney fees and going from an application for about $343,000. Yeah, what did he reduce it to? So it was about $90,000 at the end, wasn't it? Yeah, so that's a pretty big cut. But we know, and and if you've been listening to us very carefully and taking notes, you know that it's mandatory, the fees under these Lemon Law cases. I said prevent- that already. You're repeating what I said. Okay. You don't even listen to okay. me. Okay, I'm turning into you, not listening to people. Uh, what? What? <laughs> 
<laughs> so one of the things that the court here did was looked at the hours and said there were nine people who billed on the case. Actually did, uh, allegedly the judge did an analysis of the hours put into the case and discounted it to a little more than 200 hours, went through the analysis, said you didn't need nine people on this case. I don't think he touched the rates. The rates, I thought, in my humble opinion, were relatively low. They were in like the $300 range. Yeah, like mid, mid, low to high 300s. And and um, both the trial judge and the court were like, left it, didn't touch it. So, you know, the, so the, that's on good. Side, on the other side of this case, too, was a white shoe firm, which I always wonder about because in fee applications, why don't you find out how much the other side billed how much they did yeah. and what their rates were. But he didn't touch the rates. He went after the hours and uh, really harped on the fact that the lawyer that tried the case, who apparently she herself billed some 240 hours, which frankly is someone who tried cases. I don't find that unusual, but I, I don't know. I, I think there's something about these Lemon Law cases and judges and the Court of Appeal looking sort of askew with them. You know what that yeah. means, Sean? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe they look at this as... You know, this isn't warranted. Maybe it's a little bit of the the principle we mentioned earlier that we're going to talk about in our last case, which is pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Maybe, know? but it also could simply be that they, they look at these cases saying, oh, these cases are just meant to generate attorney fees and you're not supposed to take into consideration. The court says this. You're not supposed to take into consideration as a sole factor the amount of the ultimate outcome, but it can be a considered factor. What ultimately happened in the case, they rejected the fact that uh, apparently they hadn't beat the 998. They said that's not really, you know, relevant for our discussion or for our analysis of it. But I, I guess that I looked at this and thought it was a pretty substantial reduction for a five or six day trial. I don't know how difficult these cases are to try. The court, the court of appeal and the trial judge make it sound like this kind of a walk in the park. I, I don't think any trial is a walk in the park. Right. 240 hours isn't unreasonable. I mean, while you're in trial, I mean, look, a normal work week for a lot of plaintiff lawyers is, what, 50, 60 hours a week? And then... If, well, for someone like you. Is it supposed to be more or like... <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Well, I thought, you know, 30 hours is plenty, but but anyway. No, but, but all kidding aside, you know, you do 50, 60 hours a week. And if you're in trial, you're coming back in and you're doing more work. So it's not unreasonable to work 80 hours a week while you're in trial. So that's already just, that's more than a quarter or a third of what they were requesting here, which was 240 hours total. I mean, uh, for lead counsel, that's, it's not unreasonable. But anyway, this case kind of lays out and it, what I don't like about the opinion, uh, and it's nothing about how it's written or or the reasoning behind it, it just I, it sets bad precedent. Now, there's a uh, roadmap here that shows trial judges how to deny free applications or reduce the amount sought in fees. So that that's not that's not good for us. One other thing the court said that I don't like is it said, really, it's OK. Sua sponte. I'll explain that that means to you later, Sean. Sua sponte for the court. Sounds to make like another its language. Own rationale for attorney fees, even if it isn't raised by the um, by by the by the opposing party. And they say that, you know, that's the judge's job. He or she can do that. He can look at this and and uh, conclude. And then the, my final point on this, and then you can give your final point on it, Sean, if you have any, uh, is that there's the, the lack of a multiplier in a contingent fee case is is somewhat disturbing to me because you presumably have a case for two or three years in your office. And at the end of the day, you simply get your hours and then your hours get cut takes away a lot of incentive. I don't know, though. I'd like to know more about these Lemon Law cases and whether there is some prejudice by the courts and the rationale for it 
in attorney fees. Yeah, if this is something you do or you've dabbled in or you do regularly, we'd love to hear from you and hear your feedback and see what kind of trends there are. Just, we're curious and I'm sure people listening are curious and, and it would be good to, to, to know more about that. So let's go you know, to our be next careful. case. Let's go to our next case. Now we're going to kind of look at the opposite in, in some respects, in some respects not, of the court in the case we just talked, Mikhail Poor, saying it wasn't abuse of discretion. We're going to look at a case where the court said it probably was abuse of discretion for the court to do what it was. This case is called Vargas versus Howell, not that Howell. And it comes out of the Ninth Circuit. It comes out of uh, Nevada. Nevada. And uh, you say Nevada, I say Nevada. Tomato, tomato. And this case um, involves a civil rights case. And the facts, at least presented here, are, are pretty astounding. It's a two th- It goes all the way back to 2013. Uh, Nevada co- state court sentenced a 16-year-old juvenile to detention for car theft. He was sent to a detention facility in some lovely place called Elko, Nevada. Oh, yeah. Terrible. And there he was beaten, hogtied, and deprived of necessary medical care. Which is not proper. And which is definitely not yeah, proper. It should not happen. It said after more than two years of litigation, including extensive discovery, the parties entered into a settlement where uh, the 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 minor received $99,999, so $1 short of $100,000. And the plaintiff lawyers under civil rights asked for $257,000 attorney fees and $39,000 in costs. So no, no, nothing astounding there, nothing that shocks the conscience. Uh, trial, the case didn't go to trial. I guess that's that was certainly a factor that they looked sure. at. Sure, but they litigated it for many years. The the trial court said the vast majority of hours expended in this case were unreasonable, uh, and they put an across-the-board percentage cut of 90% to the number of hours claimed by, I guess, the lead lawyer in the case. Yeah, and the panel here, Ninth Circuit, said that uh, the district court erred by doing that because— it doesn't matter. For example, one of the reason hours were cut is because uh, the lawyers were no longer at the firm at the time that the application was made. And, yeah, and, and let's talk about crazy. that for a minute. So the court took that issue and said, you can't do that because the attorney fee doesn't belong. The attorney fee application doesn't belong to the lawyer, even though the lawyer may ultimately be the beneficiary of it. It belongs to the client. So I thought that was a good part of their holding. The client's the, the one that's on the hook for the fees, presumably. Arguably, you know, that, that, right. That's, that's the, well, that's the theory. But, but under the statute, the, the client owns the right to make the attorney fee application so that a lawyer's leave a firm or their firm blows up. That doesn't mean the client can't make an application later for whatever time they put in. So I thought that was a good part of the case. What I ultimately they send the case back um, for further consideration. But what I didn't like about the case was that they start talking about the ultimate result that this case didn't result in injunctive relief or any kind of, in, which isn't required under civil rights litigation. Nope, it's not. And and I think that's an important thing because especially, you know, you look at these civil rights cases, you want to incentivize people to work on them. You want to incentivize people to take these cases and fight the good fight. And it, and look, civil rights cases, sometimes they're, they're difficult or challenging, and sometimes they're not. And because oftentimes it's it's a pretty straightforward principle that people should be treated equally and, and someone at a juvenile center shouldn't be hogtied and beaten. I mean, they're straightforward. Sometimes they are straightforward cases. What well, we don't want to discourage um, plaintiffs, plaintiff lawyers from representing these parties just because the cases are easier. Right. And I'll also point out that even though they didn't get injunctive relief, they put evidence in front of the court that the, right. the Nevada Juvenile Detention Center stopped certain practices. Changed their practices, yeah. Just so there's no order. In class action didn't... litigation, mm-hmm. you have a catalyst theory where you go in and say, look, our, our action changed this and we should be paid our fees. And apparently they seem to be, you know, disregarding that in its entirety. And also, it's a very soft opinion in the sense that we're reversing it, but we don't really disagree with a lot of things that the judge did. 
Yeah, they say we conclude that given the size of the cut the district court imposed, the court's explanation was inadequate. You need to have an explanation for why, and it lays out the different factors, and I think those come from a case called Hensley. So this is a good case to read. There's a dissent at the end, and how did you... <laughs> the dissent is, is is a judge who's sitting by, a district court judge sitting by special assignment of the Ninth Circuit, and that judge finds that the, what the district court did was fine and goes so far as to basically say that... Um, District court should be awarded large discretion in making these fee applications right. because who better to determine than the district court judge? So, which is what he is from right from one district court judge to another. <laughs> happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, okay. Our third case, Sean. Uh, this is Arache versus Medico Investments. Um, it's an elder abuse attorney fee case, and this involved someone that was in one of these facilities. And, and one of the reasons why we have elder abuse statutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it illustrates um, you know, what can happen to the most vulnerable members of our society and how we want to disincentivize people from taking advantage of them. So apparently the original plaintiff in this case who died while the case is proceeding turns out to be the great aunt of the plaintiff who came in as the representative of the, um, the decedent. And uh, she was a resident of this foremost senior campus. And somewhere along there, the people who owned it and his uh, employer assistant, um, they purchased her home for $66,000 in 2010. Now, I don't know where that house is, but I'm guessing that $66,000 might have been a little bit below market. Yeah, that sounds like a bargain, wherever it is. But it's okay, because in exchange for $66,000, um, the lady was allowed to live at the facility for free for the rest of her life, however long she sh- she would live. So it doesn't sound like a terrible deal. Well, yeah, but things change. Agreement. Yeah, things something change. changes. Uh, so Medico comes in and buys the facility and goes, uh, well, uh, hello, ma'am. Um, um, we understand you have some deal, but uh, you got to We'd like us. to talk to you, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. And so then they make her start paying 50%. And then I guess there's allegations of neglect. There's also allegations that the prior employee was controlling her finances. And it seems like that's a separate part of the action. But this action went against the um, the, the the people who currently own it. The medical. new ownership that took over and tried to right. kind of so kick her out. Took it to a jury trial. She's By this time, she's passed away. So there's no you know non-economic pain and suffering type damages. Right. But they took it to a jury trial and they got an award. Um, seemed like a relatively modest award, right? Right. Um, just under $40,000 in economic damages. As Brian said, zero uh, in non-economic damages. But the jury found that the company, Medico, acted with recklessness, oppression, fraud, and there was a claim for elder abuse. And that awards you, uh, among other things, attorney fees. And here, uh, the plaintiff made an application for attorney fees. And there was how much awarded? I think right under $90,000 in fees and then another 20000 in costs, right? Right. And right. No, I, no indication that the award was cut. And, and I mean, the right. fee application was cut. And um, they, what their argument, what Medico's argument primarily was is, well, there was no dollar amount associated with the elder abuse claim for um, financial elder abuse. Right. So maybe we should make that clear in terms of what the jury awarded. The jury awarded that the the just under $40,000 for the uh, elder neglect claim, but didn't award any economic damages or any dollar amount for elder abuse. But they definitely found in favor of plaintiff on the elder abuse claim, just on didn't the net, award right. a dollar amount. And so what the court said was the the 
there is no discretion about whether to award fees or not when it comes to elder abuse. The statute's clear. The statute is very clear. It says where it is proven by a preponderance of evidence that a defendant is liable for financial abuse, um, as in section whatever the, the code is, the court shall award to the plaintiff reasonable attorney's fees and costs. There is no thing in there about if there's a dollar amount awarded. If it's proven by preponderance of evidence, which it was here, they, the court shall award the fees. So uh, that's what I, I guess what they what they ultimately found is the jury said that an employee of Medco hid her money, probably didn't steal it, but just hid it and deprived her of it. So there was no economic damages, but they still constituted elder abuse. And the court makes it very clear. If you're found liable for elder abuse, you absolutely have to pay for it. Yeah. In, in, in the way of attorney fees. This is consistent with what I was saying about the civil rights cases. Just because it's straightforward, just because the jury, for example, doesn't award a dollar figure for that elder abuse component of the lawsuit doesn't mean you should disincentivize plaintiff lawyers from taking those cases. That's why the statute exists. You want people to take these cases and represent the most vulnerable members of society. So that's kind of in line with what the court says here. It says you don't need to do that. You don't need to have a dollar amount awarded for the elder abuse. I mean, just look at it. it it's it's the, the money that was awarded was for elder neglect. I mean, just because it wasn't awarded under that cause of action. Right. Elder and then that turns us to my favorite argument in the case, I say that sarcastically raised by um, the defense in this case. They said, well, but there's no physical manifestation, so we can't be liable for elder abuse for neglect if there's no physical manifestation, so we're not liable. And the response the court had to that was? The court just rejects that. Yeah. Like, get out of here. Uh, I mean, I was telling Brian, I'd love to see how they articulated that argument or what they what case they relied upon, because there isn't some, that's a made-up requirement. There is no requirement. All right, our last case is a big big, high-profile, long-term litigation that involved uh, Panasonic Corporation and others um, for what's called the in-ray optical disk drive products antitrust litigation. It has to do with like hard drives and something that's too complicated for me and Brian to substantively understand, much like many subjects. But the case wound its way through the courts for a very, very long time. Um, The original district court judge had since retired and the case had been transferred to somebody else. I think that ultimately there was an excess of $100 million awarded in settlements. I don't think the case ever went to trial. And the lawyers had made a, a ginormous fee application, which, you know, I'm not arguing wasn't wasn't well over 100 million, by the way. I think there was there was kind of uh, there was, first of all, two sets of plaintiffs on behalf of which there were settlements. And then in in one of the sets uh, of plaintiffs, there were four different tranches of settlements, different groups of plaintiffs. So there's two categories of plaintiffs. And within each category, there was four different groups. Just the first of which that's the issue here was like one hundred and twenty four million dollar settlement. Um, and right. then there was a few more smaller ones, but but still big big numbers we're talking about. And in the uh, first settlement, the uh, plaintiff's firm sought, I think, thirty one million dollars in uh, attorney fees, and then three point seven million dollars in costs. Uh, so we're not talking, you know, p- pennies on the dollar here. It's it's pretty big. It's like twenty five percent fee applications. But what's important to keep in mind is that before the firm was appointed as class counsel for that category of plaintiff, they submitted an application. There was a bid to be awarded uh, or or to be uh, appointed class counsel. And as part of it, there was estimates submitted for the fee structure and proposals. And there was also kind of a game plan uh, submitted as part of that bid. 
So right, but but the important point is it was a sealed bid, and yes. the people objecting to the fee award here didn't know, or at least for the vast majority of the time, didn't know what that sealed bid contained. And apparently, that sealed bid contained a cap on uh, fees and said that the expenses would be absorbed in the fees so they wouldn't charge expenses. I mean, among other things, yeah. The the, the court here, so ultimately what happens is the district district court approves all of these fee applications over objections, approves all of them. And so now all those objections are up on appeal. And the court of appeal says that, that look, when the lower court uses- Ninth Circuit. Sorry. This is the Ninth yeah, Circuit. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, when the Ninth Circuit says, look, when the, when the uh, district court- uh, uses a bidding process. The the bid comes from the bid is going to be the starting point for determining a fee. I mean, what's the point of having a bidding process uh, for proposed lead counsel if you're not going to stick to that? So that's where you start and you go up and down from there. And apparently, the award here of well over twenty five percent was not in line with that uh, with the numbers proposed in the bid. Yeah, I can't tell from reading the opinion what the ultimate fee app, uh, the fee awarded was. It was being challenged. But of course, again, the court said it's abuse of discretion. We look at it. But here, the objectors were disadvantaged because they didn't have the full sealed bid. At, at, at points in time, they didn't have any of the sealed bid. And then when they did have the sealed bid, they didn't have the whole bid. And then, um, but it looked like they violated it. So I guess the good news that comes out of this court, this case is, and the plaintiff counsel argued this. They said, look, it became a much more complicated, difficult case than anyone thought it was going to be. They spent like tens of thousands of hours on it. It went on for years. They incurred millions of dollars in expenses. And we'll talk about the expenses in a second. But ultimately what they said is that, um, as as you said, Sean, okay, maybe there's a reason to deviate from the the bid, the, the sealed bid, but the sealed bid has to be the start of the analysis. Right. And and it's I don't think the uh, Ninth Circuit here is rejecting it or saying that the work does not warrant the fee. Um, what they're saying is that the court has to provide a better explanation when deviating from that bid or and right. Some, it could be justifiably uh, deviating from that bid, but they have to provide that. And given because the court has a fiduciary duty that it owes the class. Uh, so it has to you know, note that and properly do the do an analysis and explain why. Last point on this, though, is that the court did reject their application for costs and said, no, you made a promise that your costs were going to be in your in your attorney fees. So if I was arguing this on on remand, I'd say, OK, but that's got to be a factor in evaluating why you need to deviate from the right. sealed bid on attorney right. fees. Right. Because we it's something insane, like three million dollars. Yeah. Cost, yeah. Right? It's multiple seven in costs. In costs. Yeah. Which which I mean, we do a lot of class actions and we rack up a lot of costs, but that's a lot. So, look, you know, that has to be considered. And that's the argument I'd make on remand. Too. I think our takeaway from today is on these fee application motions, you have to be very careful. I think be very you have careful. To be very yeah. precise. Uh, you have to be upfront. You have to disclose what you're doing. You have to look at you know ver- a variety of factors and put it in there. I, this is not a rubber stamp process by any means, and especially if you have opposition to your fee application or serious opposition to your fee application, you've got to you know dot all your eyes and cross all your t's. Yeah, I mean the last case we looked at, it wasn't one that there was an opposition to, and look how hard it was. So. You know, keep that in mind. And we're by no means experts, but we've done a lot of these. So if you have questions, if we could ever be of any help to you, you, you want our insight, you know, reach out to us. Um, okay, yeah. that's all we got. So that's all that's we it. got. That's all. That's all. You can stop listening to us now. Uh, so follow us online, kbklawyers.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us. And thanks for tuning in.